This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. $78 million sounds like a lot of money. That's how much the state collected in marijuana taxes last year. Not quite half of it went to schools for capital improvements, things like fixing roofs, big renovations. But to say that the state is flush because of pot taxes is a myth, according to the Colorado Fiscal Institute, a myth they hear a lot CFI economist Chris Stifler is with us as the state begins a new fiscal year. Chris, welcome back to the program. Hi, Ryan. It's fun to be back. So Colorado voters approved Amendment 64 in 2012, which legalized recreational marijuana here. And uh, this is how proponents cast the debate back then. If we pass Amendment 64, Colorado businesses would profit and tax revenues would pay for public services and the reconstruction of our schools. Let's vote for the good guys and against the bad guys. Let's have marijuana tax money go to our schools rather than criminals in Mexico. The key line there, public services and the reconstruction of our schools, which might make you think there's a big chunk of change. Is there, comparatively? Well, comparatively, there's there's a big difference between some local districts that are getting some big improvements, like Edgewater, who's going to redo their civic center with some of their local dollars they have... uh, generated from marijuana. But uh, the, if you look at the old total state budget, uh, $70 million is a small really drop in the bucket. I mean, consider we spend $6.2 billion just to pay for our public schools in Colorado each year. So Edgewater, for instance, is using the local taxes on marijuana. That doesn't have to do with the money the state is taking in. That's the distinction there. That's correct. And as a comparison to even just education spending, let alone the whole state budget, what you're saying is that the revenue to the state from marijuana taxes is, would you say, infinitesimal? What would you use? It's actually just a small drop compared to the unmet need, really, in the state. Uh, the, for the first $40 million of the excise tax that's really applied on the grower of marijuana goes to the BEST program, which is the Building Excellent Schools Today Fund. It pays for just capital construction for schools. So it can't be used to pay for teachers. It's really used to pay for new roofs, new ventilation systems, uh, new school improvements. Okay. And it's done so, so far? Yes, there's about uh, about 35 schools probably saw capital construction uh, grants fulfilled through the BEST program uh, last year. And uh, about half of that money came from the marijuana dollars. Okay. And where does the rest of the money go? So you say that first $40 million is for capital construction for schools. And then about 15% of some of that state money gets distributed to the local governments. And the local governments can do what, what it wants, depending on... How they decide. Uh, some some districts are using it to uh, to fund homeless programs. Some districts are using it to fund uh, college scholarships. Some are using it to pay for some of their local roads. And isn't the state using some of the money towards education? Isn't that part of this? Uh, the idea of educating consumers about marijuana. That yes, is to so say. a lot of it is just a, is the treatment, substance abuse treatment, uh, education, um, poison control. Some of those dollars, the state dollars, go for small things like that. Okay. The other thing to put into context here is the money that pot is generating in terms of taxes versus the cuts that education has seen in this state in the last several years. Can you put that into some context? And that's the public misconception is somehow that all this marijuana dollars should be able to supplant all the other revenue the state collects. And it's really not not the case. Um, Education, we spend $2,000 less per student than the national average. And we've made significant cuts to our K-12 budget in the last several years, known as the negative factor. Um, A small 40, 40 million each year Again, pays for roofs and capital construction, but it's not paying for teachers or not uh, replacing the cuts 
that we've made. The general figure has been that education in Colorado has lost about a billion dollars in the last several years. Yes. Yeah, so when the recession hit, you know, we can't borrow money like the federal government can borrow money. So we got to make cuts when we don't have the revenue that comes in. K-12 education saw a lot of those cuts. Uh, the, the fact the number right now is about eight, $831 million short of where we should be spending. So we basically lost $830 million to inflation in the last several years. I guess what you're getting at here, uh, Chris Stifler, is perception versus reality. People's expectations of what pot revenues would do and what they're actually doing. Do you think that's the disconnect that you are encountering in the community? Yeah, I think it's a psychology issue. People always think the conspicuous you know, new revenue that we're generating from marijuana should just supplant all other re- forms of revenue. When they don't understand that the state needs all sorts of revenue from property taxes to sales taxes to income tax to really pay for the, the things that our neighbor- neighborhoods really care about to build thriving communities. All right. Let's understand more about why those revenues wouldn't be perhaps hardier than some might expect. Uh, Part of this is some communities don't allow recreational marijuana dispensaries, Um, among them Grand Junction, Colorado Springs, many communities on the Eastern Plains. So that, to some extent, must be limiting revenue that would come into the state, right? That's correct. But also people are moving, changing cities, jumping cities and buying their marijuana in the neighborhood, neighboring city. And then that neighboring city is benefiting from those local dollars. And then your other cities that don't have not legalized or not been able to sell it there are not benefiting from the dollars that could be coming into their, their city. Right. And that's the question of those local dollars. And then there's the fact that recreational marijuana is taxed much higher than medical marijuana. And since recreational became legal, there has not been a precipitous decline by any means of people uh, using medical marijuana, in, in part because of the tax structure. Right. That's correct. So the medical marijuana only has the 2.9% state sales tax that most goods have, whereas the recreational marijuana has a 15% tax on the, the grower and then a special extra 10% state sales tax when you, when you buy it. Hmm. I want to dig into the, the capital construction that benefits from the marijuana tax revenues. You called it the best program, building excellent schools today. Whom does that money tend to benefit? Because it's, it's by no means evenly distributed across districts, is it? Right. So it's a, there's a misconception that all schools are benefiting from the BEST program, where in actuality, it's, it's a long list of schools that are waiting for money to come into the program, sort of like an organ transplant donation list. They're waiting for new livers to come in or new, new money for new roofs, new ventilation systems, new safer playgrounds, new security. And last year, there's about 35 schools were awarded those grant money, those Thir- grant dollars. 35 schools or districts? Oh, 35 districts. Districts. Oh, right. And and potentially multiple projects within each or? Probably one project, about 35 projects. I see. Okay. So you're talking mostly, a lot of them are roofs. And as my coworker likes to say, it's reefer for roofers. Reefers for roofers. Paying for roofers. But the misconception, once again, that all districts benefit, or even that most districts benefit, is strong enough, apparently, that it prompted one big district to release an informational video. In the two years since legalization, Denver public schools have received no funding from state marijuana taxes. Now, we should be clear that DPS apparently never asked for these best grants. Its CFO is quoted as saying, we're not going to waste our time applying for grants we're not likely to get. But what is Denver's move there to, you know, enlighten the public, tell you about how people perceive state marijuana taxes? 
So, yeah, the BEST program is really designed so the local dollars and the, and the rural poorer districts can really benefit from the capital construction um, where bigger districts have an easier time uh, paying for capital construction. Um, the big, big, the big uh, difficulty for Denver is that when we're running extra local elections to raise people's property taxes to fund their own schools and there's this misconception that the marijuana dollar should be just paying and supplanting all the dollars. Why should I raise my taxes if the marijuana dollar should be paying for my schools? Hmm. More context. We're trying to offer a lot of that here. Um, how do marijuana taxes compare to other so-called sin taxes? So, you know, cigarettes, alcohol, etc. Yeah, we actually have pretty high cigarette taxes in the state. Uh, we collect a lot more in cigarette taxes than we did in marijuana taxes last year. Um, our alcohol, alcohol taxes are very low compared to the, not most of states. I think we spend about tax about eight cents a gallon compared to the national average about 26 cents a gallon on on beer so again we're, we're very low ranked in our tax taxes on alcohol okay so how how would you say marijuana compares then it's higher than those it's a lot, a lot lower than a, a cigarette tax generates more than the marijuana tax last year okay our education reporter Jenny Brundine was recently in Sterling Colorado on the Eastern Plains. Residents there are seeing their schools struggle with shrinking budgets. And while she was there, she spoke with a farmer named Alan Barton. I thought when we voted on the marijuana proposition that the the taxes were going to go to the schools, higher education, and nothing has been seen from that. I don't think uh, higher education was ever part of the discussion, really. But um, here's how Republican State Senator Jerry Sonnenberg of Sterling replied. The state voted on a 30-second soundbite that says, do this for schools. Chris, do you think the pro-marijuana legalization groups misled people or were purposely vague? I mean, I want to say that in the ballot language, they spelled out the $40 million figure for construction that you mentioned earlier. So it was plainly in front of voters when they cast their ballots. Yeah, I don't think they were vague. I think it's a, a function of the public psychology. They they hear a hundred, you know, eighty million, hundred twenty million in marijuana dollars, and assume that can just suddenly fix any sort of shortfall in the state budget. When it's hard to comprehend that the state budget last year was twenty five billion with a B. When you when you look at all the state cash funds, federal funds, and and income taxes. I want to stress that we're focusing on the specific revenue gained from taxing recreational marijuana, um, but there are obviously other ways that the industry uh, affects the state budget, I suppose in more indirect ways. You talk about employment, you talk about the filling of retail, warehouse space, maybe bringing tourists to the state. So I think it's important to acknowledge that this is one aspect of this part of the economy. That's a great point, Ryan. Your outfit, the Colorado Fiscal Institute, has been critical of the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, which limits how much tax money the state can hold on to. Isn't it in your interest to downplay the benefit of pot tax revenues to paint the state budget situation as, as dire and potentially affect, I suppose, a change to Tabor? I just want to ask about your motivations here and whether they're, whether they're pure, Christopher. Oh, that's a great question, Ryan. So, I mean, we always talk about the, the underfunding of our schools. Um, we're 48th in funding for higher education per student. We're 40th in uh, funding for schools for our K-12 system when we used to be a lot better at doing it. In the early 90s, we were 23rd in per-pupil funding. So we've definitely seen a, f- a, small, a fall in the spending on things that we really care about for our communities. Um, whether whether or not the marijuana dollars play into a Tabor situation is not as relevant as as kind of the misperception that people don't need to 
uh, really rely on revenue that really support their neighborhoods and communities. Uh, so if they think the marijuana dollars should just supplant all their local property taxes and all their sales taxes, that's that's the kind of battle we're trying to uh, – the myth we're trying to uh, correct. You wish to disabuse them of that notion. Thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Chris Stifler, economist at the Colorado Fiscal Institute, whose stated goal is to, quote, inform and influence policy debates. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's day two of the Republican National Convention in Cleveland, the day Donald Trump is set to become the GOP nominee. Last night, U.S. Senate candidate from Colorado Daryl Glenn gave a primetime speech. The retired Air Force lieutenant colonel focused on racial tensions. Glenn is African-American and had these words for President Obama. This president ran to be commander in chief. Unfortunately, his rhetoric has made him divider in chief. We're more racially divided today than before he ran. But there's more. Did you see the new Black Panthers outside? Where's Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton? They don't speak for black America and they don't speak for me. Mr. President, I have a message. This is not about black America, white America, or brown America. This is about the United States of America. That last phrase there, echoing what then-State Senator Obama said himself at the Democratic National Convention in Boston in 2004, quoting from that, there's not a black America and white America and Latino America and Asia America. There's the United States of America. Glenn went on to criticize the president for his treatment of police. You know, and quite frankly, somebody with a nice tan needs to say this. All lives matter. Here's some more facts, Mr. President. Neighborhoods have become more violent under your watch. Your rhetoric has a direct impact on the relationships between communities and the police. We can bring this country together, but we must realize that our heroes in blue are part of the solution and not the problem. Stand up and support those men and women in Dallas. Stand up and support those law enforcement in Louisiana. Let's make sure that we hear them, ladies and gentlemen. This is your opportunity. Blue lives matter. Yes, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. And the rally is, nobody wants bad cops off the street more than good cops. But if we really want to heal our communities, more men need to start stepping up and taking care of their children. Safe neighborhoods happen when fathers and mothers are in home. That is an excerpt of Daryl Glenn's speech at the Republican National Convention last night. He hopes to unseat incumbent U.S. Senator Michael Bennett. And next week, we'll bring you Colorado voices from the Democratic National Convention. An unusual item is for sale on Craigslist. 
The price tag is $350,000. It's not a fancy car or a house. It's a ghost town. Cabin Creek, Colorado is about an hour east of Denver, near Byers. James Johnson owns the property now. His listing includes the old gas station, a cafe, RV park, private shooting range, and... The old motel is about 2,000, 2,300 square feet. There's a little house that's about uh, 1,000 square feet, two bedroom, one bath. The town has been abandoned for decades, and there are rumors it's haunted. Johnson told KDVR Television he wants to sell so he and his wife can retire. So we're ready to uh, get out of town even farther than this. So what is it like to buy a town? The Seeger family knows. In 2015, they bought Hillside in southern Colorado. And Chris Seeger is on the line with us. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm okay. I want to know how you found Hillside in the first place. How did you even come across it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, southern Colorado is where I would kind of call home. And my grandparents have a ranch out there. They've they've had it since 1987. And actually, the, the community we purchase is Hillside, Colorado, which is about 10 miles north of West Cliff, Colorado. And and really, it was easy. The, the town has always been fairly vibrant. It's got a post office and a little general store. And so I, I kind of grew up spending summers with my grandparents up there and um, saw a lot of different owners that own Hillside. And, um, you know, we'd go over there and get a candy bar, get a soda. When we were bailing hay, we'd go over there and, you know, get a drink and, and that sort of thing. And so uh, about a year and a half, two years ago, I was just actually driving to the ranch and, and saw, hey, the town's for sale. It was just a big real estate sign. And <laughs> Um, so drove past it kind of not thinking much about it, but, um, it just kind of bugged me a little bit. And so I, I called the real estate agent and we, and we took a tour and, and kind of moved from there. The for sale sign said for sale an entire town. I think it just said for sale. And then once I pulled up the listing, it, you know, it kind of said, Hey, town of Hillside is for sale. And here are the specs behind it. Um, and, and one of the real reasons we were interested is, um, you know, just kind of the hit my history there. I went to high school in Westcliff, graduated in 2004, and um, we're, we're actually living in Texas right now. But that's really, Hillside's really my home. That's what I call home. Um, and, and so when I started communicating with some of the people, there was a lot of fear of, hey, if someone buys it, they're probably going to shut the post office down and get rid of the little store. And, and we're worried about that. So um, so it was really interesting kind of from the get-go. Yeah, let me say that the price tag included a post office, livery stable, corral, guest house, two beaten-down cottages, and a zip code. You paid $285,000, according to the Fremont County Clerk and Recorder, and there are about 100 residents in the area. How did your family react to the news that you wanted to buy Hillside, Colorado? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so I got really excited about it, came home and told my wife, and, and I think she thought I was a little bit crazy. Um, but it, it really fit. So so a few years ago, four years ago, my parents purchased a bed and breakfast in Westcliff. And uh, my wife and I, Tara, had graduated from CSU. And, and we said, hey, you know, we'd like to help you run this thing. And um, so they allowed us to. And then we we eventually started just buying in and really got familiar just with the lodging industry and just saw the need for um, 
for more lodging providers in Southern Colorado, there's a tremendous amount of visitors that come and, and it's just a little bit underdeveloped in Colorado. And so when I, when I looked at Hillside, I really just saw the potential. I said, man, we got to first of all, maintain community because this is what I call my community. But there, all these other buildings, um, they're beautiful buildings. Um, they need some TLC, but there's a lot of kind of handmade architecture within the buildings. So if we can pull that out and revive these buildings, I think this is a beautiful location that we can, you know, we can use as vacation rental cottages. Um, So at that point, my wife started saying, okay, you know, let's run the numbers, let's run the metrics on it and see what it looks like. And and we ran the numbers and and it started making sense. And um, yeah, so, but I think her reaction was, you're crazy. Let's, let's put a little bit more time into the data. (laughs) And you talked about getting buy-in from some of the other folks in the area because there are residents around Hillside. Um, How do they feel about, you know, these like short-term rentals? Yeah, that's a good question. So, so kind of just to backtrack a little bit, um, in the nineties, there was a gentleman who bought Hillside and just did kind of a lot of bad things, tore some historical buildings down and just kind of, um, infuriated the local residents. So the people who we purchased it from were, um, a few couples that had gotten together and said, we want to maintain the integrity of Hillside. Um, but they had just realized, Hey, they're getting older and Hey, we want to bring someone in with some energy and with some vision. And we, I mean, we came in and said, this is our plan. We want to maintain the integrity of it, but we want to, you know, uh, provide a business model that makes money so we can bring events and concerts and that sort of thing back to the community. Um, so they've, they've been in- incredible. The, the folks that sold it to us have been some of our biggest advocates. And, and we really just kind of went in and listened to them and said, hey, you know, what are you guys afraid of? Um, what can we prevent from happening? What do, what do you guys want to see here, et cetera? So it's, it's been an incredible experience. Hillside, this town that you and your wife bought, is close to the Hayden Pass fire. I understand the town is not in danger from that particular fire, but uh, there has been some smoke in the area. It did make me wonder, though, Chris, um, do you have to have a town insured when you buy it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, it's think of and that's what whenever my friends find out, hey, you own a town, I kind of try to minimize it because you seem a little bit egocentric if you say I own a town. But I mean, it's really a business, you know, when it comes down to it. The community is there. It'll always be there. But the actual physical day-to-day is operating a post office and vacation rental cottages. So it's insuring it is just the same as insuring a business. Um, but yeah, that we're, we're really kind of devastated about that fire. Um, a lot of neighbors um, have been either evacuated or close to being evacuated. I think some of them are back in their homes. But we had a, a fire four or five years ago, the Duckett Creek fire, um, that was terrible too, that burned up kind of the, the east side of the Sangre de Cristo mountain. So we've been really praying a lot about that, that no one would get hurt in that fire. Mm. Hillside is very different from Cabin Creek, this Colorado town on the plains that's now for sale. It's been on the market, we understand, for about a month. Cabin Creek is, that that is. Um, any thoughts on what it would take to sell? You know, you got to have kind of the angle, you know, I think Hillside, it was in great condition. The uh, The previous owners loved it, and, and they had taken really good care of it. So for us to come in and just do some renovation work, and, and we also had a great connection with some um, some incredible contractors in the Hillside area that really saw our vision, which is you know maintaining all the integrity of the buildings, maintaining that rustic look, but making them a little more modern. 
Um, but I think we just had the angle of we know lodging, we know this this property can make money, um, and we want that was the whole model. We want this to be sustainable, not for a year or two, but we want it to stay a community for the next hundred years. Um, so just trying to get to that business model and the the Cabin Creek. I looked at that listing. That one, um, I think someone's just going to have to figure out you know what angle makes it work, or or some people somebody might just say, hey, I want to just buy it and use it as my own place. No. It's remarkable to be sitting in Metro Denver and realize you paid $285,000 for an entire town when that might, might get you a house in this city. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, absolutely. Chris Seegers and his family own the small town of Hillside in southern Colorado. We talked about what it's like to buy a town because across the state there's another one for sale. That is Cabin Creek, east of Denver, about an hour east of Denver. Just ahead, why turtles grew shells. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Shells provide good protection for turtles, but that may not be why those shells originally formed. Denver Museum of Nature and Science paleontologist Tyler Leeson is here to share some new research, and Tyler joins us by phone. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. So your theory is that turtle shells did not primarily evolve as a protective armor, even though that's a function they serve now, but because, I guess, turtle ancestors were digging creatures. Explain this. Yeah, so, I mean, the turtle shell is, of course, this evolutionary novel structure, and very few novel structures uh, evolved for their current function. So it's a bit like the the bird feather. You know, the bird feather uh, currently is used for flight, but uh, we have feathered dinosaurs, and of course, dinosaurs weren't fort flying, and that was uh, so they were initially evolved for either thermoregulation or to attract mates. And with the turtle shell, I mean, it's also this this very complex structure, and uh, you first have to think about like how the shell formed. And the shell of a turtle forms unlike that of any other shelled animals. It actually uses its ribs and its spinal bones to form the shell. And so I've argued that the earliest uh, deviation from sort of the the lizard-like body plan from which turtles evolved uh, was this broadening of the ribs. And this broadening of the ribs was an, an adaptation for digging. And that eventually the ribs broadened so much that they became external? I think of ribs as something that's internal to a creature. Well, with turtles, the turtle ribs are also uh, internal as well. And then on top of them, they have modified scales. So when you pick up a a painted turtle or a snapping turtle, you'll see that it has has keratin or fingernail-like substance on on top of the, the ribs. And so in turtles, uh, if you go way back in time, 260 million years ago, we get an animal called Enotosaurus that has these very broad-like ribs, very similar to turtles. And then over time, those ribs broadened and broadened, and eventually they sutured together to form the turtle shell. And this is unlike any other animal that forms a shell. So we think of like an armadillo, uh, some dinosaurs, like ankylosaur dinosaurs, uh, they all have shells, but they have bony scales that form on top of a normal-looking ribcage. There's a video of how you imagine this to happen at cprnews.org. And so what you're saying is that turtle shells really are different from 
I don't or an armadillo shell, something like that, and that's a huge clue here. That's right. I mean, and I think why that's so huge is that ribs are so important in both breathing and then in, with animals that walk on four legs, uh, the ribs are really important in locomotion. And because of these two things, uh, not many animals modify their ribs. Uh, if you think about uh, the ribs of a dinosaur, the ribs of a whale or a snake, of a human, they all sort of look the same. They're, they're pretty boring structures. And it's only turtles that have significantly modified their ribs to form a shell. I mean, there's many reasons why, to form, you know, why you'd want to form a shell, you know, namely for protection, but not by broadening your ribs. Because by broadening your ribs, it interferes with breathing, so you have to come up with a new way to breathe. And then the broadened ribs, it, uh, it stiffens your trunk, basically. And if you have a stiff trunk, then it, it shortens four-legged animals' stride length, and it slows them down. So it interferes, you know, negatively with, with breathing and then also with, uh, with, with locomotion. And so that's what led me to this idea of, of digging. So I thought, well, you know, if they form a shell this way by broadening the ribs, what was the selective pressure that pushed them in that direction? Right. For forming yeah. a shell. And so I started looking at the, the overall anatomy or the whole, just the, what, what the animal looked like, looking at its hands and feet and just its entire skeleton. And I also then compared it to modern-day animals, and there are some modern animals that have broadened ribs, um, namely uh, anteaters. So anteaters, they're, they're not digging into the ground, but they're always digging, tearing into termite mounds to, uh, you know, to, to feed and so they have a very specific way of digging, and that's with these really broad strokes of the forelimb, you know, these ripping, ripping-like motions to get into the, uh, into the termite mounds. And what that does is that creates a lot of, of torsion in your trunk region, you know, the region between your shoulder girdle and your pelvic girdle. And one way to counteract that torsion is by broadening your ribs. Broadening the ribs. So when do you think this happened? I think the, the very first steps uh, happened about 260 million years ago, so a full 50 million years before we get a fully developed turtle shell. Was there a particular fossil that helped you realize this discovery? There was. There was a particular fossil. Um, and it's from this animal called, again, Unotosaurus africanus from, uh, from South Africa. And I've been studying this animal for the last six years, and I had this idea a few years ago about, you know, that, that maybe tur- these early proto-turtles were digging, but I didn't have the evidence to really show that. But then that changed uh, just a couple of years ago when a, a couple of key specimens were found. And one specimen was actually found by, a, by an eight-year-old boy who was out uh, driving around on, a, on his tractor working, and he thought he ran over a lizard. And, uh, and it wasn't a lizard, but it was actually this really well-preserved fossil. And we brought this fossil back to the, to the lab at, in Johannesburg, right, where I have some of my colleagues. And we spent the last year cleaning that fossil up. And it preserves a beautiful hand of, of one of these animals. Now, digging animals, uh, if you're digging with your, your forelimbs, you need, you need a big hand, you know, essentially a big scoop to remove the dirt. And then digging animals also have, generally have, really big claws. 
because you need a way to break up the dirt. And you Yunotosaurus, this early proto-turtle, had both of those things. Hmm. Do you feel any kind of kinship with this, uh, this young man? I do, I do, yeah. I mean, I started looking for fossils when I was about his age as well. And uh, unfortunately, I was not able to, able to meet him. But uh, yeah, I definitely have feel kinship with him. Uh, it's great to see people out there looking for fossils and then collecting them. And then what he did, the next step was even better because he took that fossil to the local museum. And now that fossil was really key in answering this, this particular question, and who knows what questions this fossil will answer in the future. That kid doesn't get his name on this species or something, does he? Uh, unfortunately not. He, um, this, this particular fossil was, was already named, you notice, Horus oh. africanus, so it was named a long time ago. Okay. Did having a shell help turtles survive the extinction that wiped out the dinosaurs? Just real briefly. Yes. So those adaptations that allowed the animal to go underground because of the digging motion also allowed the animals to go into the water. And animals that lived either underground or in the water did much better across the KT extinction or that moment in time when dinosaurs go extinct. Fascinating. That is Denver Museum of Nature and Science paleontologist Tyler Leeson. He recently published a paper showing that turtle shells evolved as we've been talking about, because of digging and not necessarily for protection. Photos of turtle fossils and that video I mentioned at CPRnews.org. The program continues on Colorado Public Radio. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Sweet and lucky antiques in Denver is not what you'd think. Inside is a room with its own weather system. Another space has a small lake under a cluster of stars. The giant warehouse is the site of the latest Denver Center production, Sweet and Lucky, and audience members are part of the performance. We're going to put this into context shortly with the New York Times chief theater critic. But first, a little bit more about this unusual show from CPR's Stephanie Wolf, who saw it. Hi, Steph. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I understand that when you first arrived, you were told to check any bags or purses. You needed your hands free for this theatrical experience. Why? That's right. I was glad to have my hands free. My friend and I were talking in the bar area before the show started and an actor walked in. He closed the curtains on all the door frames. He dimmed the lights really low. And then he handed me a shawl and he passed out umbrellas. And I thought, that's strange. That's really strange. I'm at a theater show. Why do I have an umbrella? So as he started to lead us down this long hallway, I could hear rain in the next room. And sure enough, I stepped into that room and it was raining Pretty heavily, actually. And as I looked above the canopy of open umbrellas, I saw a casket. And that's when I realized we were at a funeral. A funeral? Mm-hmm. What happened after that? The rain did eventually stop, and I closed my umbrellas, as did everybody else. We had these pieces of paper that were handed out. They had a song on them, actually. So a performer led us through song. And I'm not a very good singer. So I actually felt pretty awkward singing with strangers. But there were several people around me who were quite into it. And then shortly after that, I felt a hand on my shoulder and an actress actually led me away from my friend and back out into the hallway. And I didn't see my friend for the rest of the show. So don't expect to stay with your party if you attend Sweet and Lucky with friends. That's correct. Yeah, you'll 
potentially gets separated. It's not a definite, but it could happen. Okay. So this actress, she was dressed like she had stepped out of the 1940s or something, and she turned on a recording of a female voice. The voice was really sad, and it was speaking to what I would have guessed was maybe her husband or her lover. I, I wasn't quite sure. The mystery was starting then. And then another performer eventually led me into a different room where I was asked to sort through letters, and I eventually shredded those letters. And then I was led to another room and then another, and that's kind of how the whole thing went. I would break away from the group I was with. I would meet up with other people. I would sometimes meet up with the same people, and I could tell there were scenes unfolding in various rooms all around me with different actors and different groups. Wow, it's so labyrinthine. So each person, in essence, has a totally different experience from everyone else. That's certainly what it felt like. My friend and I talked after the show, and she saw rooms that I didn't even see, scenes that I didn't even see. And it was definitely labyrinth-like. It was actually a little disorienting at times, which made it feel like as if you were walking through this dream. And as I was going through the whole process, I felt like I was putting the pieces of the story together. And so are you essentially a character in the show if you attend Sweet and Lucky? That's the intention. I spoke with Zach Morris of Third Rail Projects. This is the Brooklyn-based company that the Denver Center commissioned to create Sweet and Lucky. Okay. And he said a goal for all Third Rail shows is to put the audience at the very center of the action. So performers spoke to me directly. They asked me questions. One sweet and lucky actress asked if I believe in luck. And if not luck, did I believe in fate? And it kind of felt like what my answer was would dictate where she led me next in this labyrinth of scenes. Uh, There was a point I played a card game with other people. I even was invited into the main character's home for a Christmas dinner. And as they sat me down at the table, I thought they might actually serve me food. So all along, you're given these specific tasks and the actors guide you through this experience. So I felt very entrenched in the scene. But I I wouldn't say in the end that I actually had a role in moving the plot line forward. Okay, it sounds like this could be an introvert's worst nightmare. I mean, if you were the kid who never raised your hand in school because you didn't want to be called on, um, you know, might this be an uncomfortable experience? It could because you're asked to participate often. And sometimes that requires speaking. Um, I'm actually a former performer myself, and there were times where I felt a little awkward at times. And there are some people who were in, like, audience members who would mumble when they were spoken to, and then others spoke really boldly. So you can't be passive in this experience, but I would say I was never asked to do anything too outrageous. Okay. This is part of the Denver Center's efforts to reach out to millennial audiences, I understand. Millennial, we hear that word a lot these days. That's true. The DCPA got funding from a New York-based foundation called the Wallace Foundation, and the idea was that they would work on building its audience base. And with Denver's growing millennial population, the center decided that it would focus on that demographic specifically. When I went to Sweet lucky though you do have to be 21 or older to go to most of the shows they have Mm. a few 18 or older shows because they have alcohol there but i really saw a range of ages not just millennials steph thanks so much thank you stephanie wolf producer and reporter for colorado matters we're going to zoom out now on this concept of immersive theater that's the term of art here because this is not actually a new concept it's been going on in cities like new york and london for decades new york times chief theater critic ben brantley joins me. Ben, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I understand one of the first experiences you had with immersive theater was in New York's Meatpacking District. This was in the early 90s. 
You say you have... It was indeed when, yeah, when the meatpacking district was a bit shadier and more open and generally more fun, I'd say. (laughs) You say you have vivid memories of that time. Will you describe that show for me, what it was? It was a a play, if that's the word for it, called Father is a Peculiar Man. I actually think it had a a proper script. It was produced by a company called En Garde Arts that uh, specializes in what they called environmental theater. And basically you were... Oh, gosh, all sorts of things happened, sort of cued from the novel, but then translated into American terms. I remember at one point the Kennedys arriving in a convertible that is Jackie and Jack, as on that day in Dallas, there was a long groaning board of a uh, banquet table that took up more than than half the block. And I think we ended in a torture chamber where we watched individuals being whipped. And I think this was all supposed to be about the decline of family values in American civilization. But um, it was it was quite vivid. And it was also fun to see an area that you knew, a part of a city you knew, so transformed. I mean, we say all the world's a stage, and it's kind of great when it's put to practical use like that. Right, when it becomes literal. You know, talking about the torture chamber, it makes me think of hell houses, which are those Oh, kind yes, of-, of course. Yeah, no, and they've been, but they've been going on for, what, 20 years now? Uh, there was a uh, a company here, an experimental company here called Frère Corbusier that recreated a hell house without irony, without winking. Uh, they actually bought the hell, hell house kit that you can, can order online and created the experience of going through an environment in which you see the chambers of hell reserved for people who may have abortions or be homosexual or uh, unpatriotic or whatever. Each It's sort of a Dante-esque version, but as seen from the American far right's perspective. That's right. These hell houses, uh, many of which actually are in Colorado, are often run by churches. Uh, you say for an interactive show to be most effective, it needs to do more than just break the fourth wall between performers and the audience. It needs to create an environment or a world you can, quote, fall into. What, uh, what do you mean? Well, I, th- I think that's true. Uh, Third Rail, uh, which Stephanie was just talking about, have a long-running show in Brooklyn here called Then She Fell. Right. Which is about is it recreates Lewis Carroll's world and that of Alice in Wonderland and that of course begins with Alice tumbling down a rabbit hole into uh, uh, an alternative universe and I think we're fascinated always have been by the ideas of alternative universes I mean for me going to the county fair when I was a kid in North Carolina sort of provided the same sensation but you want a world that turns your world upside down to some extent that has its own own rules, own environment, as Stephanie was saying with this latest project that Third Rail has done. And um, I think you go to theater to be taken out of yourself to begin with. When you go to immersive theater, it becomes a physical process as well. Uh, when Steph talked about hearing that it, you know, like it raining on you in Sweet mm-hmm. and Lucky, I couldn't help but think of the comedian Gallagher, who is famous for his sledgematic act. He would (laughs) smash watermelons and a variety of other produce that would rain on the audience. Right. We're going to start with the watermelon. Ah! Then we're going to go to the pineapple, which isn't as good. It's too too hard. It's too hard. You see this? Is there anything that's gimmicky about this or risks being gimmicky? Sure. I mean, it's a stunt to begin with, but I think, you know, theater in itself starts off as a stunt. Um, it's, uh, 
what's I think why it's so particularly appealing to people at this point as we we sort of at you know and the apogee of of self centeredness in our culture. Everyone likes to think he or she is the star of his own show and can <laughs> control the script to some extent. And um, a lot of these uh, pieces let you do that, even though you're not really in control. They give you the illusion that this is this is all about you. It's um, it's more than any other form of theater. It, it panders to the audience's individual sense of uniqueness. I think. And is that good for theater? Why not? I mean, anything that that transforms the world, I think, through art is 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 pretty exciting. For me, the uh, I mean, there, I've been in very sort of self contained uh, special environments like Punch Drunk. The London Company has a long running uh, variation on Macbeth, in which you walk through the haunted chambers of a hotel. Mm. But what I especially love is when you like as on as on guard arts did with the Dostoevsky thing when they take when you when you're sent through the streets of a place you think you know and this this I've done in London as well as New York and you're asked to look at it as if you were observing a play. Uh, there was something in London where I went through Camden with a headset and I was told you know look over here someone will be meeting you and everyone you look at becomes a, a potential actor. So. Um, the, it turns theater as metaphor into theater as as, as reality, as street reality. And uh, that, I think, is, is tremendously enriching. Earlier, we heard from Stephanie Wolf, our producer, that she didn't think her answers to questions that the actors posed really redirected the plot line. Have you seen shows where it, it, it's truly that the audience member is, you know, effectuating a change on the storyline? No, I don't think so. I think okay. it's all pretty much in place. The illusion is is that you are. And, of course, you are in the sense that with something like what Punch Drunk does, and I've seen several productions by them, you choose to follow one specific performer or one specific group of performers. So you're seeing a totally different narrative than someone else's. So to that extent, by pushing buttons, as it were, by turning left and or turning right, you are seeing a different story from anyone else. But you have to be game to do this, don't you? You do. I went to one uh, show in London called You, Me, Bum Bum Train, in which you really are the star of, of, of the show. You go in individually and you're thrust into different environments, like suddenly you'll find yourself being a politician fending off questions about your investment in BP oil, uh, or you'll be at the bottom of a garbage heap, or you'll be a singer in a bar. And you have to assume each of those roles as it goes along. Fortunately, in this case, it's only the actors, uh, that is, who become the audience in this case, who are looking at you. But uh, yes, you just hope there's uh, no one's uh, posting something on YouTube afterwards. We have just about 30 seconds, Ben. Um, Are lots of playwrights writing in this genre now? Well, I think a lot of companies are working in this genre. Uh, it's not so much a, a play per se, uh, in many cases, as, as creating an environment. And uh, it's... It's the equivalent of of, of fun houses for uh, for adults, uh, just a, a bit more sophisticated with a certain uh, cultural gloss. And at their best, they can truly take you out of yourself and take you out of a familiar world or turn a familiar world into something exotic. That is Ben Brantley. He is chief theater critic for The New York Times. The Denver Center Sweet and Lucky runs through August 7th. That's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters or Facebook CPR News. 
I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Public Radio.